0: that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking.
1: When I teach oceanic exploration, I tend to glaze over the importance of Madagascar. Since it's so close to Africa, and it's located within a pretty predictable wind pattern of the Indian Ocean. So what's there to talk about? Well, a lot, actually. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Jane Hooper talks about Madagascar and its importance to the history of Indian Ocean trade and exploration. Hooper is an assistant professor of history at George Mason University, and she's the author of a new book, Feeding Globalization, Madagascar and the Provisioning Trade, 1600 to 1800, recently published by Ohio University Press. Jane Hooper, thanks for talking with me today.
2: And thank you for having me.
1: So I wonder before we talk about uh, Indian Ocean trade, you know, as as it connects to Madagascar, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the geography of the Indian Ocean, how it connected or... Or separated people living living there?
2: Well, I think the best way to think about the Indian Ocean is connected through a series of, I would say, almost roads, routes that people envision themselves as connections. So we, we tend to see oceans, at least today, when you look at a map, those are blank spaces, right? Mm-hmm. But that's sections that divided people. But for even the people prior to the arrival of Europeans, frequently they saw themselves as connected in a variety of ways all across the Indian Ocean. Just as Europeans might have thought of themselves as connected to each other all across Europe and even to Asia and across the Mediterranean.
1: I should tell you, I teach an Atlantic uh, history course, and okay. um, so the way I kind of describe this is my little potted history of uh, of the Indian Ocean because I don't know as much about <laughs> it. Uh, but what I what I say to my students is that uh, you know the, the the Atlantic is a very although there are you know very structured. Um, current systems that that move through it and that are important to know for navigation. The Indian Ocean had this m- kind of monsoon cycle, which made it more, I guess, more m- made regular trade more possible. Is that is that a correct uh, way to look at it?
2: Yes, that's correct. So it, it meant that there was much longer connections, a much longer history of connections, very specific ones, north, south, and somewhat east, west. But Madagascar itself is on the very edge of these wind systems. So Madagascar ends to be the end of the monsoon winds Mm -hmm. where the last vessels would end in the north. But also Madagascar itself was settled sometime around between the 4th century CE or so, maybe a little bit later, scholars debate, by immigrants coming from all the way from Indonesia, present day Mm -hmm. Southeast Asia. So Madagascar is very connected to the Indian Ocean in ways that are not as usual as what we tend to think of in terms of Indian Ocean commerce. But yes, I would say that the the main difference with the Atlantic is that these connections are much longer and older. Mm. And so the spread of Islam, for instance, would change the way people would envision those connections, the spread of material goods, um, merchants, the ways in which families set up connections are much different than what we see across the, the Atlantic, I would say.
1: I was interested to read in your, I think it was the first chapter of your book, about how connected Madagascar was um, already by the 10th century or so to, um, would you call that the Swahili coast or Muslim traders?
2: Yes, I would say Swahili coast, roughly defined. Um, Islamic East Africa. And so here we're talking about the Islamic northern coast of Madagascar, northwestern for the most part. Obviously, other parts of the island were connected, but to a lesser degree.
1: And on the island itself, at least in the reports of when the Europeans show up, they're talking about how amazing it is for cattle and <laughs> and um, all of these populations of animals and and rice. And did these species pre-exist? You know, I mean, how how long have they been on the island?
2: Well, these are all Asian species. So when the immigrants came from Southeast Asia and India, that they brought with them um, agriculture, including bananas that might have emanated from Madagascar, from East Africa, and then spread throughout Africa, but also the cattle and the rice rice as well came directly from Asia. And this is very clear in the type of cattle that are raised in Madagascar, but also the rice growing practices are very reminiscent of what you see in Southeast Asia.
1: As Europeans begin to move around the coast of Africa, both I guess searching for routes into the interior of Africa and then ultimately to uh to find a sea route to Asia. Um, they they encounter Madagascar in fifteen hundred, is that mm-hmm. it? Yes. And and I just wanted to know like when I was when I was uh reading this I was thinking like, well why would they even bother? They have all of that East African coastline <laughs> you know, things grow there, they can stay close to shore, they can, I guess they could pick up the monsoon winds. So could you talk about why Madagascar was even like, you know, on the map, so to speak?
2: Well, I think for multiple reasons. Um, I think the first reason is, yes, they had other locations throughout the Indian Ocean on the western Indian Ocean coast. But East Africa is actually not that fertile of a region, right, on the coastal region. So the food had to be brought in from the interior for the most part. If you go further up the African coast and all the way to the Arabian Peninsula, those are very arid landscapes, and so Madagascar actually was an area that exported food even prior to the arrival of Europeans. They exported rice and cattle from the island to the Comoros, to East Africa. And so the, in, in my mind, the Portuguese were simply tapping into that already existing agricultural exports from the region. Obviously, for other Europeans, the story becomes far different because they need to acquire food um, in order to traverse the Indian Ocean. And they're not going to necessarily stop in Portuguese holdings to purchase that food.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that um, it quickly um, gained a reputation among European powers as a kind of uh, Eden for, um, I can't remember, you you, you profile um, an account, I think from the early 1600s, saying this is like the the happiest people in the world live in Madagascar, (laughs) and it's the most fertile place in the world. Do you think... um, well, I mean, I, I've I, I've worked on um, Africa a bit and the kind of myth structures that you know mm-hmm. grow up among Europeans about it. Do you think this was a like dr- how? Well, I should say the question: How much do you think this kind of um, idea was driving European sailors towards the island?
2: Yes, I mean, I think it was very much overblown. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what Europeans are responding to is the presence of food already available for sale on the coastline, whereas. Um, you know, the people themselves don't necessarily have a great surplus of food beyond those goods that they're trying to export. Mm-hmm. But for Europeans coming as merchants, you know, they're welcomed in. There's already a locally, you know, practicing market for selling this food. So I do think that this this rosy view of Madagascar is going to encourage incursions and colonization and just trade constantly, As they hear from other sailors or merchants that this is where you go to buy food, this is where you go to buy cattle or find water, and the people will be willing to give this to you for a good price.
1: Mm. You know, I kept thinking as I read um, about Madagascar in your book that, you know, I kept trying to think, well, how does this compare to Africa? How does it compare Mm -hmm. Because there, there are a lot of parallels that you talk about. Like, um, you know, Europeans are looking to get stuff that's valuable. Europeans are looking to get uh, food, and then ultimately, Europeans are looking to find slaves. And uh, and yet, and so in in Africa, if I you know am understanding this correctly, the you know the Portuguese do attempt to just move inland by themselves, start kidnapping people. Uh, bring them out and bring them back to Europe. And it really goes badly um, for a number of reasons for the fact that they're, you know, people resist quite, you know, strongly, but also because of issues of disease. And I wasn't sure is, is that parallel to what happens in Madagascar? Or does it unfold differently?
2: Um, there are some similarities. I do think, I mean, the Portuguese learned, in even in West Ac- Africa very quickly, that um, the best way to get slaves is to deal with local merchants mm-hmm. and to deal with local rulers. And the same thing in Madagascar. The slave trade begins rather later, aside from some earlier Portuguese attempts to get slaves there. And that also tends to go through pre-existing Trade and commerce and rulers and so on, um, but definitely disease becomes a major factor in the early settlements in the 17th century. The French and the English fail miserably to survive in Madagascar, in part because of disease, but also because um, while the Malagasy might be willing to provide visiting merchants with food, they're not necessarily going to sell that to colonizers.
0: Mm.
1: And another thing I was thinking about was, you know, in in the African context, you have these. Um, kingdoms on the coast that start, you know, setting up these essentially trade relationships with Europeans, they, they're the ones that go inland to um, find, you know, kidnap uh, Africans from other clans, bring them to the coast. But on, on Madagascar, I mean, it's an island. So at, mm-hmm. what, at what point does that, you know, begin to extinguish the possibility of, of slavery in the interior?
2: definitely populations are limited within Madagascar. And that that becomes apparent very very early, I would say, in the 17th century. But I think the biggest difference between West Africa and Madagascar is that the Europeans are competing directly with other slave merchants for slaves. But which I mean within West Africa, slaves are being shipped across the trans-Saharan slave trade, whereas in Madagascar, they're being shipped across the Indian Ocean as well. And so Europeans are going to the exact same ports and they're competing with um, East African and Arab slave merchants for the exact same slave.
1: So, how developed was that slave network before the Europeans sh- showed up? I mean, when when the Europeans show up and say we we would uh, we'd like food and in addition to that we would love slaves, was it a kind of thing where they're like, oh, sure, you need to talk to uh, you know <laughs> this guy?
2: Yeah. Well. It's very hard to tell, right? Um, Most of our early sources, there's been a lot of scholarship done looking at the Portuguese sources. And other scholars have pushed back and said, no, these estimates are overblown. When Europeans say that, you know, thousands of slaves are being exported every year from Madagascar, is that an estimate based on one year they went there? Is that an estimate that they heard from somebody else? I mean, it's unclear that actually that many slaves are being exported every year, given that later years, they were unable to sustain that level of export. Mm Furthermore, I think there's a lot of slaves that are being moved from Madagascar to the Comoros to East Africa and then to the Arabian Peninsula. So how many of these slaves are coming from each of those locations, it's also less clear. So we have some observations of this, but I think scholars tend to constantly debate these numbers. I don't think we have any kind of settled idea of how many slaves were already being exported. But there was clearly a sense of the value of slaves before Europeans arrived, and there was a pre-existing slave commerce from the same ports, and Europeans Mm -hmm. were able to tap into that.
1: You know, one of the things I liked about your book, I, I always like when I'm reading something and I, I find something that's surprising and makes me think, oh, I'm going to have to change the way I teach this. <laughs> but one thing that you say, and, and it's actually really central to your project, is this idea that, you know, um, food's really important. Mm-hmm. And it's not just important um, in terms of provisioning ships, and it's not just important in terms of uh, its cultural value, uh, but it's it's really, we need to... Rethink the way we look at trade in the Indian Ocean, and um, so the potted history that I tell is: Hey, if you're going to go a really long distance, you should get like super valuable stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You, you 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 want spices that are insanely expensive, and you can pack a few barrels of that on your ship and make tons of money. And you argue that that's a really simplistic way of looking at trade. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit. Of-
2: Of course. And this isn't to say that the luxury trade is not essential. Obviously, that's what's powering European vessels across the Indian Ocean or even local Indian Ocean vessels are carrying luxury items. But I think more and more, we're realizing that what was on board those vessels cannot have been just silks or spices, but rather they have to carry certain mundane items that are power that commerce And Mm -hmm. it's very clear to me when I looked at these sources of Europeans stopping to Madagascar, they are buying hundreds of bags of rice, they're buying cattle, they're buying as much food as they can purchase. And this is for very low values for them. But this is necessary to power them through these voyages. So the access to this food might mean the difference between life or death, whereas, you know, carrying some, some silks and some spices aren't going to necessarily mean that the crew themselves will survive this voyage.
1: You talk about this, this difficult choice that uh, Europeans had to make as they round the uh, Cape of Good Hope there it's like well we t- do we take the inner passage which I guess is very the waters are very choppy mm-hmm. uh, or do we take but it's close to it's cl- close to the coastline or do we take the outer passage around Madagascar to the east where it's a it's a more direct route but then you're really on open ocean and the idea of provisioning becomes more important am I understanding that correctly Definitely.
2: And so if you run into any issues like leaking barrels and you run out of water or your food gets moldy or your sailors start getting scurvy, you don't have any recourse, right? And I think as this goes on into the 18th and then into the 19th century, they become more and more comfortable with taking these risks and they have better ways to alleviate this and voyages take less time. But definitely in that early period, that was a real choice that had to be made by the captains on board these vessels.
1: So I want to talk a little bit about the way you um, tell the story, or at least the sources that you use. And I I just, I think it's so, so interesting talking to historians or anthropologists about, you know, how do they come up with their stuff? Because, you know, there's this inevitable problem that we run into in telling stories like this, which is that our sources are so concentrated in these weird directions. Yes, and in this case, you're getting it so much from. I guess you've you've looked at over 300 logs. Is that is that correct?
2: That's correct. Ship journals, yes.
1: And um, so, I just I wonder if you could talk about how you wove the story together, and and how do you deal with that that perennial problem of trying to give voice or give agency to people who aren't writing the texts.
2: It's a definite problem. And I have to say, when I got at this project, I read so many ship journals because they become almost formulaic in the way in which they're written in which they stop at Madagascar and they go through certain rituals of, in order to come up with arrangements to order food. And I started to ask myself, where did these rituals come from and what do these signify for the Malagasy themselves? So in other words, what does it mean that they would greet a King and give his wives presents? What kinds of presents Mm. would they give them? And, As you begin to read into those kinds of sources, you begin to get hints of instances where the Malagasy actually are not on board with the European project, right? They start to question Mm -hmm. prices and values and ask for more and more goods. Or they begin to try to foist certain slaves off on Europeans that Europeans don't want. And you start thinking about where do their values actually not intersect? Mm -hmm. I think those are the moments where you can really see how the Malagasy are understanding European vulnerability, And in this way, taking advantage of these opportunities. So they're not just responding to the arrival of Europeans, but rather they're shaping this commerce through these interactions. And that's where I begin to get the African voice, the African understanding Mm -hmm. of what this looks like. But I also understand how limited this is, that – we still can't quite understand how did the Malagasy view some of these exchanges and understand the Europeans in ways ways that they engaged with this. Um, I do see more and more, as I move into the 19th century as well, how limited the European impact really was. Mm. Right, So this, this food is very important to Europeans, but this commerce is far less important for the Malagasy than other interchanges that are occurring within the island or even within the Indian Ocean itself and within these Indian Ocean communities. Um, we have very few Malagasy converting to Christianity, for instance, during this period or expressing interest in going mm. on board a European vessel.
1: You know, it reminded me when I read this uh, a little bit of a really different book, um, Lauren Thatcher Ulrich's uh, A Midwife's Of course, tale. yes. Uh, and, and because I think in a way, even though it's, you know, that's about, uh, you know, colonial New England and, and looking at a midwife, it's it's very different that way. But at this other level, uh, I think you're trying to do for Madagascar, what she was trying to do to this kind of economy, you know, I guess the domestic economy of, um, of looking at the, you know, the women who are doing so much of the medical work. And, and you're kind of reading through these documents to... Uh, Find this this voice of uh, the uh, Malagasy. It's it's really I really enjoyed that.
2: But of course, that has a lot of challenges, right? And so I have a lot of respect for her work, but she has a lot more documents that she's able to pull on, right? Yeah. Um, and also the, just the 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 documents seem more proximate. I feel like the Malagasy in this period it seems very distant in some ways.
1: Right. Right. Um. So, did you notice in looking through all of these hundreds of Um, of logs. Did you notice any significant differences, I guess, either in in terms of from country to country or over time, the way that people are describing trade?
2: Yes. Um, Interestingly enough, I would say the Dutch East India Company, the VOC, has the most voluminous documentation that when you read their ship journals, they will go on for pages and pages talking about the ceremonies of state and the interactions that they had and their everyday experiences, whereas the French and the English become a lot more succinct as time goes on, especially into the late 18th century. Mm-hmm. Everything becomes much more rigid. Um, we arrived, we loaded food, we left again. And that might be the nature of some of these sources right. that I come across. Um and now now that I've been moving into the 19th century, I'm still looking at some of these ship journals, although frequently these are Americans and they're whalers. And it's been telling to me that how much of this is actually dependent on the personality of who's writing these journals, right? Hmm.
0: That yeah. some people
2: just find the need to ask questions about what's going on and and interrogate and get to know the Malagasy and ask them, like, why are you doing this? What does this mean? Who is this person? Whereas you might have another person who arrives and says, you know, we traded for some things and then we left again. I was glad to be out of there. And you don't get any sense of what was going on to make them happy to be leaving this port.
1: Do you ever find um, as you're working through the logs that, uh, I mean, I think you're doing a really interesting kind of survey work, you know, by looking at all of these logs. But do you ever get completely like hung up on a particular log and say, you know, I think I just want to chase this one down the rabbit hole?
2: Of course. Yes, of course. Um, Right now, one of my papers that I'm working on is from the 1830s, um, an American surgeon who was on board a whaler as a sailor. And he provides the most detailed ethnographic references. I mean, he describes this funeral in Madagascar for pages and pages and pages. And The details there are just so fascinating that I I have to use the other sources to kind of contextualize it. Mm. But I do think that focusing on just one element of his journal provides me with a much different picture than looking at, you know, hundreds of them at once.
1: You know, uh, it's interesting you mentioned this kind of, this person who seems to see Madagascar differently. And and it makes me think like, you know, we we try so hard as uh, historians to avoid judging the past according to the framework of the present. And yet, I think at times it makes us almost uh, think, well, maybe me, I should just talk about myself, but I think, uh, you know, I almost think monolithically, oh, this is a time at which when this was accepted, you know? Um, Exactly. And then you come across a person who's like incredibly sensitive to to these issues, and it makes you think, wow, so there was a space for that, right?
2: Exactly. Yeah. And it reminds you how diverse their views are. I think that's something that's really hard to get across to students as well, is that we, ha- we tend to say Europeans thought this. Mm, the Malagasy yeah. must have thought this. And it doesn't give us any space to think through how did they personally experience, you know, what they felt and, and stated and what does that really mean?
1: So uh, you visited Madagascar. Did you did you live in Madagascar?
2: Yes. Right after undergraduate work, I went to Peace Corps. I joined the Peace Corps and went to Madagascar. Lived there for a little over two years.
1: And how did, I guess, how did your, or did your personal experience in Madagascar, I don't know, frame the project or did it shape the way you thought about the project as you went into, you know, uh, your grad program, for example?
2: Definitely. Um, Well, so I lived on a tiny island off of eastern Madagascar called Ile-Saint-Marie. And um, I've done some work on that island because that's the pirate island is the way it's known, because it was settled by obviously Malagasy, but then it was joined by European and American pirates at the end of the 17th century. And so there's some fascinating memories of that history in Madagascar. And it had got me thinking about the ways in which people in this part of Madagascar that would seem very isolated to us you know, looking at it from the United States, understood their place in the world and understood connections across the seas in various ways.
0: Hmm.
2: And I came back very interested in exploring the nature of those connections. So how are they connected to Africans? How do they view themselves as not African in the case of Malagasy? Most Malagasy, if you spoke to them and said something about Africa, they would say, oh, we're not like them. We're not African. Hmm. We're Malagasy. So
1: then the Malagasy's consider themselves different from Uh, let's say, from East Africa and also different from other Indian Ocean cultures.
2: That was the feeling that was expressed to me in that time and place where I was in Madagascar. I can't say that speaks for all Malagasy, but I definitely encountered a sense of not just we're different, but we are superior.
1: Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Um, And, um, you know, a, a bigger question I had as I read this was just like I said before, you know, I, th- I thought, oh, man, I- there's so much of your story that I don't, I don't know. I don't know the context of this. Um, whereas I do know so much more about the Atlantic, and I even know more about the Pacific. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. is, this, is this a me issue, or is this really a historiography issue? Uh, do we uh, give a lot of attention to these other ocean systems? Um, well, anyway, what do you
2: think? I agree. I think that, so... I will say that I was trained as an Africanist, and a lot of my background was studying West Africa in the context of the slave trade and trying to think about how Madagascar might fit with that. And I think part of this, the the neglect of studying the Indian Ocean in particular, but also this part of East Africa, has been that... Um, the ways in which jobs and so on are, are thought through in the academy are focused around land masses. Mm-hmm. And I think there's been a greater acceptance of the Atlantic world and to a lesser extent, the Pacific. But I think the Indian Ocean still focuses almost entirely on India. So if you do talk to somebody who's an Indian Ocean specialist, at least until recently, they probably worked on India mm. or perhaps the Middle East or Southeast Asia, but likely not Africa and Madagascar. Mm-hmm. And the, that part of the world tends to fall out of these discussions entirely. And Madagascar is a location that isn't inhabited by people that do not speak a Bantu language. It's inhabited by people that were colonized by the French, not by the British, um, that seem to have fewer connections to other land areas around it. it. It's even more an awkward fit.
1: And you said also that uh, it actually kind of exists on the frontier of uh, these current systems too, right? But there's mm-hmm. this current that essentially pushes south, the Agulas, is that how you call it?
2: Yes, that's correct.
1: Um, which I imagine you're not really looking forward to as a, uh, as a European ship if you're trying to make, exactly. <laughs> make it north. But yeah, there's this, uh, I mean, I know it's a kind of uh, overused word in um, the academy, but it, it really does seem a kind of borderland. Uh, to the Indian Ocean in this interesting way. But
2: I think also um, an essential part of commerce. Mm-hmm. You know, even, even as I've been going into the 19th century with my new project, Madagascar is still at the center of a lot of the currents and the the traffic that's going on within the Indian Ocean.
1: Yeah, in fact, um, before we leave the kind of the content aspect of your book, what does happen after the end of the slave trade and the beginning of, uh, you know, of steam power in, in the 19th century?
2: Well, Madagascar becomes basically bifurcated. So the East Coast of Madagascar becomes very much tied up into French and then British control of Mauritius and Réunion, the Masquerines nearby. Mm -hmm. And they are more or less fighting for control of commerce from Eastern Madagascar. And the British especially have a hand in trying to end the export of slaves from Madagascar. Um, Whereas the Northwest Coast, where used to be a center of commerce with the Indian Ocean, actually goes through this revitalization and increase of trade. Eastern Africa. And the main merchants in that northwestern part of Madagascar end up being Americans in the beginning of the 19th century. And so they carve out a space for exporting commodities, especially hides, which is not surprising in light of the cattle trade from that part of the island, um, mm-hmm. sending them back to, the, to America. And Southeast, Southwest, rather, Madagascar, um, this region that had been visited by merchants for centuries, becomes a center of American whalers visiting to provision their vessels.
1: Wow, that's really interesting. And uh, yeah, I was just thinking about, you know, I know, I know, for example, on the uh, Pacific Coast line, the Galapagos became a super important kind of provisioning area for for traders. But the difference being is the Galapagos are tiny and uninhabited. Yes. (laughs) And Madagascar is giant and it's got a culture that's essentially geared up for trade for a a millennium. So it's probably not that parallel.
2: It is in terms of the environmental impact, though. Hmm. Um, It's clear that there are certain species of tortoises, for instance, that began to go become endangered, perhaps even extinct, due to the arrival of European and American vessels during the 19th century, not the earlier period, but the 19th in particular.
0: Hmm.
1: And so do you think that this whaling project is going to be your next big project going forward?
2: Uh, It's looking at Americans, not just as whalers, but also merchants. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested how they share ideas about space and understand the geography of the Indian Ocean in particular.
1: Jane Hooper, thanks so much for talking to me today.
2: Thank you for having me. I really had fun.
1: That's it for today. Next week, Richard Jobs talks about the backpacker movement of the 1950s and 60s and how these young travelers helped reintegrate a fractured Europe. Our music was composed by Zebrat, a really great Montreal band. Make sure to check out their Bandcamp page if you get the chance. And check out the Time to Eat the Dogs page, too. See you next week.